Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the Sassfield Podcast, where we aren't saying we're unfit, but, you know, we just tried mud wrestling and the mud won. I'm Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you profitably scale and exit, creating profitable growth, premium valuation, and shift from being an engaged operator to an empowered owner. So, yeah, it's been pretty muddy. We've had a ton of rain recently. Usually around Dallas, you really don't need a four-wheel drive, and people get them as a status symbol or maybe because the ramp at the Galleria parking garage is icy once a year. But uh, last week, you know, everything is just so muddy and soft. But uh, on the upside with all the rain, fishing is getting better. So I guess the best solution is get on the water, stay off the land. That sounds like a pretty good solution to me. Well, recently, a small cafe in Australia made some pretty big headlines for their unique approach to customer service. And this is not your normal customer service kind of story. The cafe decided that they would offer a menu they called the Lies menu. This is where customers could order a meal and then be served anything the cafe felt like giving them. The catch was that the customers had to eat the food without complaining or sending it back, no matter what it was. The cafe owner explained the concept was a way to bring some humor and lightheartedness to the dining experience and also to challenge customers to be more open-minded and spontaneous. It's really interesting. The Lies menu quickly became a hit among locals and soon customers were lining up to try their luck and see what kind of surprise dish they would be served. So of course, the story went viral on social media with lots of different people praising the cafe's creativity and entrepreneurial spirit, even attracted international media attention all the way over here in the States and journalists, food critics coming from all over the world to try the Lies menu for themselves. Cafe became a must-visit destination for foodies and thrill-seekers alike. The owner was able to turn a simple cafe into a popular tourist attraction. Now, a lot of you probably know that restaurants have incredibly high failure rates, uh, one of the highest of any business category. I really admire the brilliance of standing out in a crowded market. It's a wonderful example of creative differentiation, and it also shows the power of using humor and unexpected experiences to create a memorable and enjoyable customer experience. So that's what I like to call surprise and delight. Well, if there's one thing that doesn't lie in business, it is numbers. And our guest today is a straight shooter, no lies menu there. In fact, he built his business based on total transparency, using a SaaS finance framework that transparently links operations to finance in order to help SaaS growth boom. Today's episode is sponsored by Champion Leadership Group. Get free growth tools and map out a growth plan to scale your SaaS business to eight figures and beyond. Travel with fellow SaaS entrepreneurs on your growth journey using a proven methodology that is mentor-guided, results-focused, and peer-supported. Celebrate wins and quickly rebound from setbacks to achieve profitable growth, impact, and freedom. Unleash your SaaS growth at championleadership.com. In our founder episode this week, on Tuesday, we talked with Drew Diagostino, founder and CEO of Crystal, a personality data platform that helps businesses understand their customers 
and build more emotionally intelligent sales teams. It's the kind of insight and communication that makes clients fall in love with your SaaS. And last week, Sarah Holly, founder and CEO of Growmotely on her expert series, remote work unlocked explosive growth for her company and facilitated three exits. Now she and Growmotely help thousands of other companies find that same freedom and expansion in a global talent pool. So if you missed either episode, definitely go back and give them a listen. My guest this week is one of the top financial experts in all of SaaS land, Ben Murray, the SaaS CFO. Ben is an advisor, educator, consultant, and fractional CFO. You know, sometimes financial reports, metrics, ratios, and all the alphabet soup of measuring business performance sounds like a foreign language. I mean, especially to us tech leaders. And the old traditional educational explanations, not super helpful. It's like trying to teach a ferret calculus. But Ben has a gift. He simplifies SaaS finance for busy B2B entrepreneurs in a way that only a few people can. Lots of great education is available through the SaaS Academy. About six years ago, he started a blog giving total clarity on SaaS metrics. Now his community is just under 50,000 members strong. Every week, they're getting Ben's firsthand knowledge on how to monopolize the metrics and make their SaaS a success. Welcome one of the smartest financial people I know, Ben Murray. Well, hey, Ben, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you are the SaaS CFO. Uh, how did you get into SaaS or has it always been a part of, of your practice? Yeah, my background, of course, is finance and accounting. Uh, came up through the ranks of FP&A and actually worked in the airline industry and then got into software back to airlines and then stayed in software. So actually, my route was a couple different industries and then up through FP&A uh, and then got into software back in the day when it's on-premise software, perpetual licenses, charging maintenance every year. And then, of course, now the the evolution into SaaS. Oh, that's great. It's a very interesting path. Uh, airlines to software and and then to to SaaS. What are the what does that evolution look like for you going from on premise to SaaS and how do you think that's changed as a, a business model? Yeah, really interesting because I remember I still remember sitting at my desk. I was a senior financial analyst working in healthcare tech, and the GM of that business unit came to me, and this was in the two thousands, early two thousands, and he said, "Hey Ben, come up with a subscription model for our on premise software." So of course, still hosted on premise. But he said, see if you can figure out a subscription price. And I still remember that project opening up Excel and trying to figure out, okay, what are the costs to deliver this, to deliver the software? What should we include here? So just from scratch. And of course, this was, you know, Salesforce was already out there. So there's some cloud offerings, but this was so new. Uh, so still remember that. And then just that transition from, all right, let's create a subscription model, the whole ASP thing to then starting to slowly learn those metrics and, and thinking about how we manage SaaS businesses and recurring models. So it took time. It wasn't just an overnight thing where we have a subscription price and then we have CAC payback period and gross dollar retention, net dollar retention. It took time for that to evolve. Yeah, yeah. That's when I started too, was the ASP days. Mm -hmm. you know, SaaS wasn't really even a, a term out there uh, for a while yet. And yep. uh, that was yeah, that was really interesting, the transition and trying to sell both, where we had two different options and companies weighing that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you, you know, it was evolving and just learning on the fly and experimenting. 
And uh, I remember we had to go to the big boss of that, the whole healthcare tech division to get that pricing approved, you know, so brand new stuff, uh, new offering, uh, you know, so still remember that. That was kind of my first taste of the subscription model. So where do you see the, the industry going forward from here as we, you know, the SaaS is kind of eating the world and do you see that continuing and what do things look like, say, 10 years from now? Yeah, I think, you know, it's evolved. It's, you know, like SaaS 1.0 was just subscription revenue. You know, I charge $50 a month or $12,000 a year. And that was right. subscription, you know, SaaS 1.0. And now, you know, I work with so many different SaaS companies. It's rare unless you're early stage startup, which makes sense that you have just subscription revenue. But now there's so many different revenue streams with technology companies. So we have subscription. We have the whole variable revenue component, you know, which could be usage, transaction, consumption, processing. Uh, I've had one SaaS company or client who had I think five different revenue streams because they're point of sale. So they had subscription, they had some processing, they had some variable revenue, they had hardware revenue, some services revenue. Uh, you know, now it'll be, I think now it'll be the hard part will just be keeping up with the evolution of how we deliver software and price it and how we create value from the software. And for those like me, a CFO, it's like, boy, how do we now invoice? How do we bill? How do we do RevRack and, and staying up with the delivery of revenue and how we're creating value for our customers? I guess that's really the, the next logical question is how, how do, you, do you deal with that as a CFO? Do you like multiple revenue streams or do you like it more consolidated where it's easier to, to capture? I think deliberate revenue streams is great. Having different ways to monetize, of course, as a CFO, I love. But, you know, say PLG, right? Product-led growth, you know, kind of that, the, all the, the, the popular thing today and well, should we do that? Does it make sense based on how we developed our product and how we deliver our product? You know, so I don't think we should just jump right into certain things because they're popular, but we have to think about, again, how we're del delivering value to our customers and which revenue steam streams make sense. But of course, as a CFO, I kind of think like sales too. If we have different pricing, different ways to expand our customer base, I'd love it. And that's one thing I really love about you, especially in this market, is that you know, well, well, a traditional CFO might just, you know, be very conservative and, and not really have that sales hat. You really have that financial background and the the sales hat together, in in two places that, that a lot of times in companies are, are opposed to each other. So operations or finance and sales, you know, butt heads a lot. But you're kind of the the blending of both of those. You know, I think that's the the SaaS CFO today has to be there where, right, we have to push back, we have to be critical, but we also have to facilitate, enable all the departments in our SaaS business. So CFOs, especially in SaaS companies, the departments I spend a lot of time with, definitely sales, probably top of the list. You know, what, what's going on in sales? What's the pipeline? What's the forecast, the commit, marketing, a lot of discretionary spend in marketing. So I found myself when I was an in-house SaaS CFO, really spending a lot of time with sales and marketing, of course, working with all the you know, services, customer success, et cetera. Uh, but that was probably one of those top departments where you spend a lot of time and really trying to understand their business model, their go-to-market motion. And right, CFOs do want to deploy capital. We don't just want to say no. So we have to figure out, you know, it's always that, that fine balance of, of pushing back, but also helping those department leaders. Yeah, that interactivity is so important. I think you're right. Having that, them working together uh, to deploy capital in smart ways, mm -hmm. because you don't, don't want to just have a blank check. And we see that a lot in in some venture funded companies that are deploying capital in, in crazy ways. 
Yeah, and obviously that's changed in 2023 and late 2022 now where you know a lot of growth. Now it's financial discipline. And I love saying you know, financial discipline never goes out of style. Of course, it's very in style. Rule of 40, trade-off between profit and growth. So now looking at cash runways and how we can efficiently deploy capital. Should we expand our existing customer base? Because based on the numbers, right, that's more efficient than acquiring new customers. So that's where now SaaS companies really have to be dialed in with their with their metrics and their unit economics. So what are the key metrics that SaaS founders should be paying attention to, particularly when it comes to finance and how they're using capital and the return on that? Yeah, I mean, you can always, you know, I, I work with my five pillar SaaS metrics framework, which covers growth, retention, margins, financial profile, and then efficiency. So for founders thinking about this, one, it's back to the basics of fundamental financial management with SaaS companies. So thinking about our gross margin, how is our gross margin right now? Our margins by revenue stream, you know, for pure play SaaS, I'm shooting for 80% best in class gross margins. You know, so how does that look? Where are we trending? Because that can create a lot of cash flow if we have good, efficient delivery of revenue. And then our OPEX profile, R&D, sales, marketing, and G&A, how much are we investing there? And of course, when we focus on sales and marketing, we have efficiency metrics tied to those departments. So cost of ARR, CAC, CAC payback, you know, maybe the magic number as well. So, you know, looking at those to see how we're deploying our capital, is that efficient? Should we pause? Should we invest more? Should we cut back? Uh, and, and that's really important today. And how do they balance that versus, you know, kind of the traditional of the last five years or so of growth at all cost? Yeah, I think before, right, growth, grabbing market share, really pushing that top line. And then, all right, let's raise around in 18 months and another 18 months to continue to push that growth. And now we can't rely on that capital coming into our business, say, every one to two years to continue to push growth. So now it is. And with the clients that I'm working with, we're looking at that cash runway. We're looking at their, that balance. How much can we invest to still self-fund our business? Or how can we make this cash last so we can get to a, closer to a sustainable business? You know, So now it's, it's really making those hard decisions on hiring, on you know, spend levels. Uh, and there's, there's some tough choices right now. That makes sense. If a founder is looking to raise or you know potentially exit, what are some things that they should be thinking about, and how soon in advance of that event uh, should they be planning? Yeah, I think planning. I mean, I think minimum six months out. You know, for me, you know, when founders reach out and hey, I'm going to raise money in two or three months, I need metrics, I need a forecast. It's like, hey, it's too late, right? That's just too soon, unless they have just great data right now. But I think you need to be. You know, when founders come to you and they're thinking, hey, it's a couple years down the road, beautiful, perfect. I love that we've got time to, to clean up the data, to put the right systems in place, to calculate the metrics, create an accurate, accurate forecast. Uh, so that, that takes time. It's a journey to get a good grasp of your financial profile. So, you know, I think if, if you're trying to scramble, it's hard. And, you know, I interview a lot of SaaS founders for my podcast. And, you know, one I actually just did another day is if you can go into a fundraising round, his advice was, if you can go in with a position of strength where you don't really need that capital and you can walk away, you know, that's great. So, you know, there are a lot of tips and tricks with fundraising when, ta when talking to founders, but I think you, you have to have a really good grasp of your numbers and time to prepare so you can speak that same language when those investors start asking you about your business. Yeah, I think that definitely affects multiples as well. Oh, yeah. You know, going in to maybe have a sense of maybe what revenue multiple I'm going to get, 
you know, from my business based on where I stand in my early stage, where it's more about the story and the growth, or in my later stage, and it and it's it's my overall financial profile, it's my retention, it's my sales and marketing efficiency. What are those numbers saying? Uh, you know, and how will investors interpret those? That makes a lot of sense. How should founders be thinking about advisors in the process? Boy, you know, it's it's interesting now because early stage SaaS, now you see you can supplement your business. You have that flexibility to bring contractors in, contractors off. You can bring fractional CFOs in like myself. And I'm seeing fractional CROs. I'm seeing fractional chief operating officers. You know, so I see a lot of use of that with companies, say, less than 10 million in revenue to bring that experience in because they're trying to scale. They're trying to get to that next step and the founders don't have that experience. They recognize that. So seeing a lot of use of, of fractional services that's more efficient, you know, and more budget friendly than hiring these full-time positions uh, in, their, in their business. So see a lot of use of that to, to supplement the founder's experience. I think you're exactly right. That's something that we're seeing a lot more of than even, you know, five, certainly 10 years ago. Yeah, you know, things like that just didn't really exist. Uh, but to be able to bring in that expertise for a short period of time to get you to that next level is priceless. Yeah, it's so common now. And when people, you know, talk to me about SaaS and like what I do, and it's like, well, do you have local clients? It's like, no, actually no local clients here in the Denver area. It's all global. <laughs> and because SaaS, sure. we're used to that. We're used to working, say, remote, working with people all over the world. And it's just so common. So bringing that fraction, you know, the fractional folks in, contractors in, just makes a lot of um, economic sense for founders. So where do founders get in trouble uh, from a financial perspective? Is it in reporting or uh, you know, the way that they're calculating maybe revenue or recognizing that? Or what are some of the challenges that you've seen? Yeah, I think the challenges, there, there is a, a repeatable cycle that I see every time and things that I work with SaaS companies fix. One, you, you know, it may not be sexy, but it's always the accounting foundation, right? We've got to have good, clean, accurate books that are timely, you know, so it starts with their good detail. We've coded our revenue streams correctly. Hopefully we have RevRec in place or revenue recognition in place at some point and just good, clean financials. Then from there, a SaaS P&L so we can see our revenue streams, so we can see our margins, so we can see our OPEX profile and the EBITDA. And then from there, we can calculate metrics relevant to our business. So I think one is just that foundation of having the proper accounting in place, having some of the basic reports in place that we can manage our business with. And then I think it founders, some founders are always you know, eager to continue to ramp up spend when maybe they shouldn't. And it's like, hey, we've got to pause here. We've got to fix the business first before we even think about incremental headcount. And sometimes that's really tough. And, and especially today, I think it's hard for them to kind of pull back when, you know, because just the, the cash isn't there for them. Right, right. Well, you mentioned SaaS P&L. How is that different than a, a traditional P&L? Yeah, because I think each industry is different. You think, say, like manufacturing, which I don't know anything about, but right, you think about, hey, I'm selling some, you know, like hardware, and there's a direct cost, a hard cost attached to that physical right. good I'm selling. Uh, and that P&L is going to look a lot different than a SaaS P&L, where with a SaaS P&L, say pure play SaaS, in our cost of goods section, usually we'll have professional services if applicable, right? The setup onboarding of our customers and training. We'll have customer success. Now that's debatable depending on what they do, if they should be up there below gross margin. Uh, we'll have tech support. And then we'll have DevOps, say our hosting architecture. You know, and then below that, R&D, 
uh, sales and marketing GNA, and that's pretty much that. There are many standards in SaaS, but I'd say that's the pretty common SaaS PL setup that we need to manage our business. When you have areas like that that are maybe gray areas, you don't know whether client success belongs above the line or below the line. How do you make that decision? The customer success area there is definitely a debate. I teach that in my SaaS metrics course, but I think if they're say focused on retention, the success of the customer. And they may look for opportunities to expand that customer, but they hand that lead off to sales. Then I'd say they belong in COGS. They belong in your gross margin. Of course, they could have a bonus. They could have a bonus on retention targets, for example, uh, but they're not trying to close those deals. It's fine to prospect for those leads, hand them over. But if they're also, hey, how's it going? I see you're using the product this way. It looks good. You could use these other features, but oh, by the way, we've got product B that would you be interested? Okay, sure. Let me get a contract for you and they'll get commission off that. Then that's a mix where it's customer success as well as say an account management role that you're focused on expanding the revenue from that customer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's not just, I want my gross margin to look better. So I'm going to put them below the line. Yeah, you right. Yeah, you have to be careful with that, that you're not manipulating the P&L uh, because eventually people will see through that if they ask enough questions. Yeah, and that's the last thing you want to happen uh, in an investor meeting or when you're trying to, to raise or exit is to have uh, weird things or, or questions like that come up. Yeah, and I always say it's like, yeah, make your numbers, make your financials just easily consumable for investors, your board, potential investors. Don't give them a crazy 50-line P&L that they're just not going to know what to do with or how to read. So just make it for, make it easy for, for investors or if you're going through a raise for those potential investors. And I think that may be different than, than what we look at internally as founders because we may want to know some specific line item detail or things that, that don't necessarily make sense outside. Oh, yeah, definitely. Right. We have the SAS PL, then I'll have a different view of the PL that is maybe by expense category. So, a lot of ways to, to slice and dice the data uh, that we need internally. Our, de- our department leaders need you know, to know how much, where are they spending money internally for each department. So, uh, hopefully, two roles, right? We're not just creating stuff for investors or potential investors, but we use it in our business as well that can then be repurposed for any sort of external reader. And early on in my journey, that would have been a really novel concept. That, uh, that those two things are, are different, things that investors are looking at or the board is looking at versus internal management P&L. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, and that's when I talk to SaaS founders and, and my SaaS clients, right? It's twofold, right? We're putting this process in place, this financial foundation in place to manage the company, to operate the company, to scale the company. But also we can use that same data, the same reports, the same metrics to provide to investors because they should be looking uh, at the same metrics that we're looking at internally. And how are companies looked at differently based on you know fundraising, whether it's an A round or B or C or, or later stage? How does that change over time? Yeah, I think you know it changes, say, from seed and series A, from the story, the addressable market, the founders' backgrounds, co-founders' backgrounds, and that excitement that you're selling, that story you're selling. You're not going to have many numbers yet, you know, not much revenue. And so it's about the story. And then that evolves, right? Over time, then they do expect numbers. They do expect forecasts, three-year forecasts, sales and marketing efficiency metrics. So it goes from the story to still the story. I mean, the story is important through every round, but then you can support that story with your numbers and your metrics. So there's a lot said about you know raising capital and, and rounds and things like that, but it's certainly not the only way. Uh, what are other ways that founders raise capital that do you see that work really well? 
Yeah, instead of say equity investments now, really you know, the hot thing, you know, the popular thing right now is the alternative financing, say revenue-based financing, MRR-based financing. So really just debt, you know, that's you could say collateralized by your recurring revenue. So that's really popular. You're seeing a lot of debt providers pop up that are even just specific to SaaS companies or recurring revenue businesses. Now, the cost of capital might be a little higher than, say, uh, a U.S. SBA loan or going to your local bank, you know, which that, you know, could be a better cost of capital, but just takes a lot longer to get through. But, you know, with these, it's really popular debt, you know, no covenants, uh, just some basic reporting that you have to provide and you get you could get your capital within a week, you know, so really flexible. uh, So that can be used for for, you know. It can, it can fit with a lot of businesses depending on what they're needing that capital for. That makes a lot of sense, especially just the, the speed and the flexibility being able to, to do that. And debt doesn't participate in the upside. So if you really think that, that you're going to grow, and, and as a founder, you should, then, uh, then that, that's really, I would think, attractive to a founder is looking at debt versus equity. Yeah, definitely. You still have to be careful. You still have to let, you know, know those terms and conditions, the covenants to make sure there are no warrants at the end or some sort of equity event when you pay off that debt. Because I've seen different things. You know, I work with founders in the U.S., also Canada and a little bit global, uh, where Canada, say, is a little bit different when they get some financing, some debt financing. Uh, but still, you do have to make sure. But there are a lot of providers now where, yeah, there really are no strings attached as long as you can repay that debt. Uh, they yeah they don't participate in any upside in your company. They want to continue to provide debt over time, and that I think that's the upside to the debt lenders is it's not just one and done, but we want to be cont- continue to be a capital source for the SaaS business. Right, right. And how has the increase in interest rates affected debt financing? Uh, you know, of course, I mean we've seen somehow it, it's affected valuation and, and the equity financing. Yeah, I mean, right. The cost of money as that goes up, that affects those lenders. I've seen, hey, you know, these offers like, hey, you know, check out this offer because 2023, it's going to change, you know, which makes sense, right? Their cost of capital, where they're getting their money from, and those investor expectations are a little bit different, you know. So, yeah, it does put pressure on those rates. Uh, And again, for me, it's whenever SAS founders look for debt financing, right? Let's just look at our cash flows, our cash flow from operations, just make sure we can absorb this payment every month. Uh, within our existing cash structure. Yeah, so not not taking money, hoping to grow into being able to make that payment. Yeah, that's that'd be pretty risky. Yeah, <laughs> if, if you're unless you have like you know, say you're you've really refined your go to market motion, you know where to invest this capital, and you know the ROI on that, then maybe that could be a little bit this different story, and maybe still like you'd feel a little nervous, but you know that'd be a potential. But yeah, if you know you're gonna have trouble with that first payment, then it's it's probably not a good choice. Sure. Well, in a market like we're looking at uh, 2023 and, and you know potentially beyond into the the next, I mean, who knows what uh, the next year or two will look like. Uh, what do you think that the risk is of, of doing that? And because essentially you're taking that revenue now instead of spreading it out over time when you're doing debt financing. Yeah, I think, you know, it still has to make fundamental sense for your business. So what, you know, the the, the debt founders I talk to uh, are debt providers, you know, they love to finance growth. So it's like, hey, are you, where are you investing the, in in this? It's usually not to right. say, do a recap. You know, maybe they can do that, but it's usually some purpose, you know, invest in the product, invest in sales and marketing. So I think the fundamentals are still there. 
it just could be a little bit harder to forecast your revenue over the next 12 to 24 months uh, based on the market conditions right now. So I think you do have to be a little bit more conservative in your forecast, you know, because for CFOs, right, we always have to look around the corner, what's coming up uh, that we don't expect, you know, so I think you have to, you know, forecasting is, is so important now. Sure. And what kind of forecasting do you, timeline do you think makes the most sense for companies? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, huge fan of forecasting. You have to forecast at least once a month in your your monthly financial routine. But I say it's it you forecast it as often as your data is changing. So if assumptions are changing rapidly week to week, well, maybe we're producing a forecast every week, a new one that forecasts out the next 12 months. But if we have a pretty static business, things aren't changing fast, then the urgency is there. You still have to forecast once a month. You'll forecast out the fiscal year, the next 12 months. But if things are rapidly evolving, rapidly changing, then the forecast has to keep up with that. That makes a lot of sense. Well, tell me about the SAS Academy. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. So I've got the SAS Academy uh, with the THE in front of that uh, .com. And so through that, I have free and paid courses on SAS metrics and finance, all my webinar replays. So I've got a ton of content, you know, just on accounting topics. I bring guests on. We you know, I had one guest on, you know, on how to prepare your SaaS business for sale, for example. You know, so a lot of topics on metrics, on forecasting, on budgeting. And uh, yeah, so it's really just trying to educate SaaS founders, SaaS investors, finance, accounting, CFOs, et cetera, on all the details around SaaS-specific finance. That's brilliant. And some fantastic content there as well. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I just, no I just, yeah, post on LinkedIn today. I've got the SAS uh, Finance 101 course for SAS founders. You know, just the basics, right, of understanding a PL, understanding balance sheet, understanding cash flow. Uh, so, trying to get some founders in there, say, hey, no strings attached. It's free right now. Get in there and, and enjoy it. Well, that's really helpful too, because a lot of SAS founders come from the development world. Uh, or like me, I'm, I'm not a developer, but it's marketing. And so, unless you actually have somebody to actually teach you that, or maybe you took some financing college, which may have been a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really helpful to know that and think about you know what what do we need to be looking at? What do we need to track? How do you how do you read a PL? How does an investor look at a PL? What are the things that they're thinking about when they're looking at that? So you know, even just you know, from a it's different looking at it as a manager than it is as an investor. Yeah, I mean, you know, SaaS founders, right? They're so busy, you know, busy seven days a week. That my experience, they don't really have time to take these long, intensive courses. So I try to make these small, you know, uh, bite-sized video lessons. But yeah, I'd say one in ten SaaS founders I talked to maybe had a finance and accounting background. Most writer technical background, or maybe sales and marketing, or they were working for a company. Uh, in that specific skill, and then started a, a company. So right. yeah, rarely, it seems like they can run with a forecast, mo- you know, an extensive complex forecast model or talk SAS metrics. And and a lot of them come to me, you know, and they're like, they like, yeah, I just want that basic education, you know, just just kind of teach me those basics, which I think is really important for them to understand. Oh, that's great, and and I can't believe it's free. I mean, that, that is just fantastic. So if you're listening to this and you have not done that, go sign up mm-hmm. as that is a, it's an unbelievable deal. Super value. Yeah. You know, and just, yeah, because they're so busy. It's like, just kind of learn along the way, you know, learn the P&L, how to read a P&L, balance sheet, cash flow, et cetera, uh, which will, will help down the road. Without a doubt. And you also have uh, sasnews.com. 
Yeah, so I've got the SAS News, T-H-E, SASnews.com. Started you like that, that T-H-E at the beginning, right? Yeah, well, yeah. there are only so many domains available. <laughs> and it was, you know, I started out as the SASCFO.com, T-H-E, and I was inspired, really, I don't know if people read the the points guy. It's a newsletter and website on on travel and credit right. cards and, and taking advantage of all that stuff. So that kind of inspired me. Uh, to grab, I think sascfo.com was taken. So I was like, well, how about the sascfo? And that's kind of how it evolved. SAS Academy was taken. So I did the SAS Academy, now the SAS News. Uh, I like to it. Just kind of stay consistent. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got the okay. SAS News site that I started over a year ago as well, covering fundraising events, interview a lot of SAS founders through that site as well, and just to share private SAS company news. Uh, you know, so it's purely to, to help out SAS companies get more eyeballs on their company. You know, so really, really fun talking to a lot of founders that way and, and just trying to spread the word for them. That's great. And there's so many great companies out there that are, are trying to just break through the noise. And you know, so I you know, really appreciate sites like that, that that helped them do it. Yeah, I mean, we've covered now, I think it's like 4,000 fundraising events over the last year wow. and a half, you know, and it's just crazy. And can't say that we cover them all, but we try to like precede to Series X rounds, even debt rounds. And uh you know, so just so much going on in the space, you know, and it's right. It's truly global, just everywhere, every niche serving every different thing. Uh, just amazed every time to, I, I talk to a SaaS founder, their background and the problem they're, that they're trying to solve. Yeah. So what are the, the biggest challenges you've seen in, in working with SaaS founders, uh, particularly when it comes to, to finance uh, or funding the companies? I think... It's it's trying to bridge that gap between the numbers and operations and making it understandable, right? Because I live and breathe numbers and spreadsheets and and calculate, you know, 10, 15, 20 different SaaS metrics, but then trying to make that actionable for SaaS founders so they can understand it, so their executive teams can understand it. I may look at it, it's like, yeah, because I live and breathe that, but trying to make it useful for founders so they can take action on that. So I think, and it's not that's not the founder's fault, but it's more on the CFO to be able to you know, educate them on what this means, what should they do next. You know, so I think you know, that, that big piece is just translating the numbers into something operational and actionable. That makes a lot of sense. One of the things, I, I wrote down a note that uh, I don't remember what it means from our, uh, our last conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And I just wrote down plans, uh, what to do, engineer profile three to five years. Do you remember what that was? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, some like, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, three to five years, like sometimes, right, investors, you know, going through due diligence, they want three to five year forecasts, you know, which are very difficult to do, but kind of a check the box type thing. So, you know, that's, I get a lot of those requests, you know, from founders and they're like, hey, they're asking for this long-term forecast, right? Those oh, okay, are always, gotcha. always so hard. So it could, yeah, uh, pertain to that. Okay. So there's a lot of different revenue models, whether it is you know, kind of the traditional subscription, you know, seat-based, and uh, usage-based we're seeing a lot more of. Uh, how do you see that playing into valuations? Uh, you know, predictability versus you know, kind of the, the old-school predictability of here's the, the license fee. Yeah, I'd say there's a lot of debate on that. From my perspective and folks that I've talked to, that the king at the top of the valuation pyramid is still contracted subscription revenue, whether it's contracted MRR, contracted AR, because you know it's predictable. You've, right, the word, you've contracted for it. So with variable revenue streams or usage-based pricing revenue streams, 
if it can go to zero, I it, it's going to be harder for that to be valued as high as contracted MRR. And we saw that in, in the pandemic, you know, some even with usage base thrive, but others it went to zero. And so I think investors, you know, at least from a valuation perspective, still like that predictable revenue for contracted MRR or ARR. Now, if you have variable revenue or usage-based pricing with some tiers, some minimums, now that's better than if it can go down to zero. You know, so I think probably a lot of lessons learned in the pandemic, if we had pricing models where the customer could just completely stop using the product, which resulted in zero revenue for us, or should they be a minimum or a platform fee plus usage-based pricing? So I still think it's that MRR, ARR contracted, and then variable revenue next. Where do you see valuations uh, going? You know, are they going to stay flat? I mean, has just been some of the air let out of the market and we're kind of back to normal? Or where do you see that over the, the next year or two? Yeah, I mean, that that's hard. I mean, before sure. the, the bubble burst, you know, maybe, you know, that ballpark range for SaaS companies was five to, N, five to 10x of ARR, you know, and of course, Depending on your financial profile, what's going on very specific to business, you know, can you push it up to 10 or you'd be closer to five or a little bit low. Now, maybe that's come down, you know, before it was like, oh, 3x of recurring revenue businesses. And it goes from there. Now that football field could be two to six or seven. Now, there's still tons of SaaS companies out there with great financial profiles that are growing at 90%, 100% and have great metrics. So it's not out of the realm that maybe they could still get 10x or maybe even above with the right buyer, a strategic buyer. You know, so there's still a lot of SaaS companies out there with a great profile that can argue for a higher valuation. Makes a lot of sense. And so, of course, the, the big question, what do you think the economy looks like uh, through the rest of 2023 and into 24? You know, is there going to be a recession? How deep? Oh, boy, you know, it's, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, that... You know, I think, boy, this is completely off the cuff, you know, but I think it could take at least through the summer to maybe feel comfortable of where the economy, the global markets are going. Sure. Uh, you know, where everyone's just very conservative right now, very cautious, cautious with cash runways, just to see how things play out. And we probably need time to feel comfortable that the, you know, the floor is not falling out from underneath us. So it could take into the summer uh, to get us back to a point where, you know, it's kind of that new normal, right? We just cut comfortable to the current market environment. Right. And, you know, and, and we've had time to see that, all right, our revenue stream is still stable. We're still acquiring customers. Or maybe things have slowed down a bit and that adjusts, you know, our strategic plan. You know, what are we doing over the next 12 to 24 months? So I think it'll still take a little time here. Yeah, that makes sense. So it was really interesting. Salesforce refused to give guidance. For the, the future quarter. And, you know, public company, and I didn't know you could refuse. But uh, they just said there's too much uncertainty. And I think that's that's probably true in, in a lot of markets. So how should founders be thinking about the, the future and cash flow in a market where there is a fair amount of uncertainty? Yeah, I think that's where, where forecasting is so important. And, and put that, you know, forecast case forward where, you know, where we think, hey, this is an achievable plan. It's got some stretch goals in there, but nothing crazy, but also just a really conservative forecast. What if things really slowed down? How would that affect our cash runway, our cash flow? So I think you really have to do those two types of forecasts just to make sure you're not caught off guard, right? It's so important to be proactive. You don't want to be behind uh, behind the curve and trying to catch up and cutting heads, cutting expenses, 
just to make payroll, uh, you know, every couple weeks, you know, so I think you have to have that conservative forecast just to see the impact on your business. That makes a lot of sense. So any specific advice that you would give founders going forward or one thing that's kind of overarching that you've learned over the years? Again, for me, right, financial discipline, you know, decisions based on data and just, again, it's the fundamentals. It's nothing too crazy. One, good, clean accounting, good, clean, close process every month, whether that's outsourced accounting or your own in-house accounting team. And then from there, right, the the financial statements that you can read and rely on and then forecast your business. And then for me, even though I love SAS metrics and calculate SAS metrics day in and day out, that's the last piece of the puzzle, right? We need all those pieces in place before we can have accurate, repeatable SAS metrics. So again, just get the fundamentals in place and then start pulling in those SAS metrics that are relevant to your business. You know, if you're still early stage, maybe it's about growth, maybe it's about retention, your sales and marketing numbers, there's just not enough data yet to make that meaningful for ROI. But if you're 10 million and above, yeah, you should have all your metrics calculated, sales and marketing calculated uh, on the, or the ROI on that. Uh, so again, start with the fundamentals and build from there. Have metrics changed in the way that uh, investors are looking at those over the last year? Or which is I, most important? I think metrics are adapting for the pricing models and the revenue streams. I put out some posts like, say, say CAC payback period or LTV. What if you have subscription revenue and variable revenue, right? If you just calculate on subscription revenue, those metrics are going to be way off. So now we have to incorporate different revenue streams into these metrics. I actually just had a call this morning from someone at a really big hosting company talking about, hey, PLG, right? That affects how you calculate CAC and payback and all that stuff. It's like, yes, you're right. It's still ambiguous sure. of how we do that. But metrics have to adapt and evolve as our revenue and pricing models uh, move forward. Yeah, super valuable. Where can people find out more about you and uh, the SAS Academy online? Oh, sure. Yeah, I've got tons of free content at my blog at thesascfo.com. So T-H-E-S-A-C-F-O.com. You can download my templates, everything, check out how-to guides. Then I've got thesassacademy.com, free and paid courses, and thesassnews.com. And I'm on Twitter a lot at uh, thesascfo. So you can find a ton of resources through those sites. And we'll make sure and link all of those. Sure. And again, if, if somebody has not been to SAS Academy, and particularly that uh, the Finance 101, yeah, you should absolutely do that. But there's a lot of great content there. And you you put out so much good content in other places as well. So really appreciate what you do to the, for the community. Yeah, no, appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, just trying to share my experience. That's awesome. Well, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Ben for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. Learn more about Ben at thesascfo.com and of course, the SAS Academy. Everyone should sign up for his blog or newsletter and at the very least, take some of his free courses at The SAS Academy. Uh, we'll link it all highlights, resources, and everything mentioned in today's episode at sasfuel.com. While you're there, please subscribe or follow us. And everyone who subscribes this week gets a random prize from the menu. It's a mystery. And you can't complain or send it back. So would you want to go to a restaurant like the one I mentioned in the, the opening segment? You ever told a waiter or waitress, like, just surprise me, bring me whatever. I have a, a few times, and, and honestly, I've never been disappointed. It's kind of fun. And so after thinking about this story, I'm going to try it this weekend, and uh, we'll see what happens. So message me if you try it and share your experience as well.
Well, join us next week for our conversation with Ibrahim Assam, founder and CEO of eCourtDate, a SaaS that makes our justice system more friendly, equitable, and efficient. This is one of those brilliant ideas that's so simple, you'll be like, why didn't I think of that? And it fills a massive need and is super easy to use and solves so many issues. And on our SaaS Fuel Expert series, next Thursday is Christopher Nelson, an experienced technology executive with two IPOs. That's right, two. He is a real estate investor and author of From No Dough to IPO. He's also the principal and co-founder of Wealthward Capital. Christopher teaches leaders like you and me how to achieve financial independence through passive income portfolios. So be sure to come back and check it out next week. And until then, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SAS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.